0: So listeners, we have a a huge treat today. We're in Fort Lauderdale for the Fort Lauderdale Boat Show, and I asked Guy Harvey if he would be kind enough to spend some time with us recording a podcast, and lucky for you all, he said yes, invited us to his beautiful studio here, um, looking at all your artwork all over, and we just started talking. I brought a copy of uh, a book Guy published with his pen and ink drawings, um, all based on Hemingway's Old Man in the Sea. Uh, which is just a wonderful piece. And so that's what we were just talking about. Now you have a new book. Yeah. Tell us about 10,000 Chicken Sandwiches. Where'd you come up with that name?
1: Well, in between all of these, uh, there have been two other bio- biographical books, autobiographical books, really. Uh, the first one was Portraits from the Deep, the same name as the television show I was working on in the early 2000s uh, with Bonnier and uh, with Sport Fishing TV. Yep. Uh, Sport Fishing Magazine TV. And that gang, with whom we're very familiar. Sure,
0: yep, did some time over there.
1: Uh, I did Panama Paradise, which is a book all about Tropic Star Lodge. And then during the pandemic, I found the time to do the the really big version, which is a uh, 350-page, weighs like five pounds, um, which carried uh, us from 2000 to present time, basically uh, 2021. Because during the lockdown, I I used all that time. A hundred days it took me to write... 120,000 words, and sent it to Dave Ritchie, and he cut it down to 55,000. Wow. He got it out in a, in a um, reasonable time. But that was a mega project. And in all of that time, Charlie, I saw um, the, the need for the very early years, the story to be told, and I based it on my mom's diaries. She wrote copious diaries about our early childhood growing up in Jamaica, in western Jamaica, and so from 1955, 56 to for 30 years, it hadn't really been addressed. And they all agreed that this would be a great story. And so they were waiting for the manuscript, and here it is. And it's, it has quotes from my mum's diary. It also, of course, has a lot of um, real fishing stories from when I was a kid, a young teenager, because there were some memorable experiences of the fishing that they did. Uh, fishing from a dugout canoe with a outboard engine to start with, um, uh, through the seventies when we were competitive in the different marlin tournaments in Jamaica, um, up to you know some troubling times in Jamaica's history. My time spent in the uh, Jamaica Defence Force, the army, we had like um, <laughs> almost a communist revolution in the country, and it was uh, it was a very perturbing time. I talked briefly about it. Um, but it was, it was formative and exciting and we got through it all. And here we
0: are today. Wow. Well, I definitely want to pick that up before I leave. And it's interesting to me cause you were born in Europe, right? You were born in Germany and then moved to Jamaica with your family and yep. obviously your love of the ocean and all this stuff. Have you ever wondered what your life would be like if you had never moved there?
1: Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been a, a fisheries scientist working in the Caribbean, probably based in Jamaica. We moved to Grand Cayman in, from Kingston in 1999, so I'm still in the Caribbean based, mm-hmm. and I commute back and forth here like I've always done. Um, so we have a special affinity for the Caribbean, and probably I would have been doing a lot of the work I do right now with Nova Southeastern University, but out of the Caribbean instead of um, on a more regional basis. I mean... Central America, Pacific, uh, all that we can talk about going forward. But it's, it's a serious body of work. And in that time, in, in 24 years we've been working with Nova, we've published 170 peer-reviewed papers Wow, on sharks and billfish mostly. Yeah,
0: That's so impressive. I mean, you're 68 now, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And to think of all the things you're involved with, it just blows my mind. I mean, all the artwork aside you do all this work with fisheries with conservation with youth groups media you, you're I, I just it's a, it's mind boggling
1: it, it it may seem a lot it's really very easy um i've i've never pretended to be good on the business side so the science is where i really am uh, as well as the art i love painting still and every waking moment at home i have a beautiful studio at home in Cayman, very inspirational is is there's something new coming out every single day. Um, recently, I was in Guatemala, and we were filming Sailfish Underwater for some more content, some some modern content on on a, a, a better grade of GoPro than we used in the older days. <laughs> and we saw some stuff with spinner dolphins and tuners and, and the interactions, and I said, I got to paint this scene. So I did a 15-foot canvas, 15 foot by 6 feet. It has about 115 spinner dolphins in it, which is a lot of repetition, a lot of painting, plus a couple of sailfish and some tunas, which add a lot of color. And it's like, hooray! So it's above and below? Yeah. No, oh. it's, it's all underneath. Okay. Yeah, because I was diving with them. Um, very cool. But again, that was a huge investment in time. I'll probably never sell it. Might sell some images off of it. But it was like, these are personal projects that I take on in addition to all the uh, commitments I've made to licensees, um, especially in the apparel line, um, but also to our customers who want a piece of fine art.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, I just have to say the first time I ever encountered you, and one of the reasons why I've always really respected you, is I was lined up to get your autograph at a boat show. And, and I had my poster, and you sat there, and you talked with every single person who came up to the table, and you were genuine, and you had your smile, you got this great smile, and so I always really respected you from that day, and then you know, having getting a chance to work with you here and there has just been incredible. Um, but yeah, I've I just always had that first impression of you, and I, and you, you still do it. You still go out there and talk with everybody. Thank you. I, I
1: do it. Just yesterday, we had uh, Jessica, my daughter, and I gave a a breakfast, uh, what you call a moderated conversation. To five hundred members of the West Palm Beach Chamber of Commerce, it was a standing room only event at the Breakers Hotel. Wow, and um, very successful of course're the other part of it is you know we 're looking for some some support, some sponsorship for our foundation, our marine Science Education Initiative, as well as the research work at nova southeastern so and then we followed that up with a lunch with all the trustees of that organization right afterwards, so we had a double header. <laughs> Which is very cool. Um, we, we I'd say Jessica and Alex, who also work for me. Th- those
0: are your two children.
1: Right. And you'll see Alex probably walk in here. He was soon. very helpful putting yep. this all together.
0: So. Oh, great. I appreciate him. Well, he
1: just gone to do an errand, but he'll, he'll be back soon. And um, they're both very entrenched and capable people uh, in their own mm-hmm. spheres. So it's nice to see some um, succession taking place um, organically.
0: Did you, I would imagine you had them out on the boat as little ones.
1: Every day. And in fact, Jessica was talking yesterday to this Palm Beach crowd, you know, how impactful it was to to go to Central America or um, some of these other places we went to. We we took them to Australia, um, Hawaii, and they fished or dived in every place we went to because they were both competent divers. And Jessica, well, she's they're both all the way through the underwater world book, which is that big fat one I was telling about, because they're they're competent, you know, in in every respect out there, fishing, diving, um, just um, good company as well. Well, yeah. that's great. Yeah.
0: I've got two little ones, and it's yeah. that time on a boat is pretty special because you're you're so together when you're in a boat. Yeah. I think with whenever you're on a boat with anybody, it's yeah. got that special yeah. bond.
1: Well, she Jessica of course wants to dive at every opportunity, so. Sometimes when we're on these long range offshore trips to the to the seamounts off Costa Rica, for example, with uh Skip Smith, she's diving on every Marlin we saw, um, every shark, every fad, uh every dolphin, every turtle we passed by, it was Stop the boat, I'm going in you know, and it was just taking That's the initiative, um, having fun and gathering the content.
0: Was, Apple didn't fall too far. There you go. Like. That's pretty neat. And so just to yeah. to roll back in time a little bit, um, back when you started this, you know I I've read up on your history and we've chatted here and there, mm-hmm. but it it really it was more about the fish. It wasn't always about the artwork, right? Did you, you never really saw yourself as being this artist, or so it seemed?
1: I I would say the art came along at the same time because I d- I did that book when I was. Seventeen to eighteen. It took me a year to do it. I was actually between high school and university and in Scotland and on my own and quite depressed about um the fact that I didn't make the grade to get into university at the time. And so I had to I was only studying for two what you call resets to do two more subjects um and get a, a passing grade. And in the evenings I would just draw every night and it was bloody cold over there and you know I'll never forget it. It was
0: definitely not Jamaica. I, I
1: don't like the cold at all. <laughs> Um, and so uh, when you look at the detail in that, it, it, it all came from living in Jamaica. I had never been to Cuba, so I had no reference, um, but I grew up fishing with people who fish like Santiago from a small boat with, uh, with hand lines and catching big fish, so I could relate and um, embellish some of the scenes you know, as I saw fit. So that's how that evolved. And it sat there and sat there, and then Gillian, who became my wife, said, "You know, you can have an art show here in Jamaica," and um, and she got me moved, motivated, and it, and it just sold yeah. out. And well, that art show opened my eyes, and then we met um, Barbara Curry, who used to write for Tournament Digest or take pictures for for that old magazine. You remember? Yeah, I do remember yeah. that.
0: Richard Gibson was involved. in Yeah, he's in that still one. around. Oh, sure.
1: He'll uh, so, yeah, be here at the bow show. <laughs> And so they, they took one of the illustrations and used it for the cover in 1987. And it was like the, the, the doors just opened. That's so yeah. neat. And uh, we did
0: many things. Yeah. And do you remember the first time you saw your art on a T-shirt? We, we worked
1: with Raleigh working at T-Shirts of Florida and his partner, Barry Shulman, who I still keep in touch with today. Raleigh passed away, unfortunately, um, about four or five years ago. Um, but he fished, and so he understood what he was looking at was good, and that's how the relationship started. And even though, as I said, he sold his share in T-shirts, I thought, about three years after I started, he worked at Guy Harvey Publishing for about eight years and de- developed our, our print categories um, and part of the brand that we still own outright, which is reproducing the art. Everything else you see in here is licensed by okay. different manufacturers, but it it was an integral part, and of course, it's the closest part to me
0: is my art, artwork. Sure, so. but it, I mean, what a great way to get it out to the masses! And yeah. it, it it wasn't like it is today, where there's so many brands and right. so many you know choices. Um, you're right. Then your stuff was <laughs> yeah. it was cool then. It's cool now. And thank you. I, I just can't imagine what that feels like when you're see some young person wearing your stuff still all these years
1: it's very gratifying and we were just up in charleston this week for a family wedding and just walking around charleston and the area we just saw several guy harvey shirts walking around and it was it's wearable art that's why people like it
0: yeah and uh, it was very cool and you've done i mean every species i i mean fresh salt
1: that's that's what I had to learn very quickly, Charlie, was to uh, cater to different regional favorites. And so while it started here in Florida and it me- quickly moved to the Gulf Coast, I had to go and paint redfish and sea trout and Flanders and um, all sorts of cool stuff that people associated with this coast, and off we went. And so the Northeast, you've got to do striped bass, you've got to do weak fish, you got to do bluefin tunas. And... Uh, Mako shark, blue sharks. And for the Northwest, you've got to do salmon and all those guys up there. And for the California coast, calico bass, you know, um, yellowtails, all this stuff. And so I quickly do all that. And we, we built a considerable uh, library of different images, yeah, which, which are timeless. Today, I've had, let me think, since TSF, I've had AFCO for 18 years. And now we're working with Intradeco based in Miami for four years. And so only really three licensees. But the art I did way back in the 1980s, 1990s is still relevant today. And everything's digitized
0: yeah. now and yeah. categorized. Everything.
1: And we're meticulous about that. Yeah. So two things that you spent a lot of money on. You have to copyright your art, of course. And the the copyright protection, as I I say to every young and upcoming artist, if you're going to sell these or make these available to the public, spend that money on protecting your IP um, because it is your intellectual property because it is the best money you'll ever spend.
0: Interesting. Mm -hmm. That's great advice. And, And I don't think people realize what good of a photographer you are. I can remember we published a lot of your photos, underwater stuff, and, I mean, you... You can swim like a damn fish and get close to those things, but just magical stuff from Australia and Panama and all these places you would go to, you would come back and show us these photos. And it I,
1: I love doing it, um, and I've met some much, much better photographers, including Bill Boyce, who we did many expeditions with. Uh, more recently, in, in Tropic Star Lodge, they have uh, two fantastic photographers, Hans Hannes Ribner and uh, his girlfriend, uh, Matilda uh, De Leon, who have taught me a great deal, and I have to show you my new screensaver, which is not a billfish.
0: Wow! That I shot a beautiful that in uh, <laughs>
1: South Africa. Yeah, it's a leopard. A tree coming down. Yeah. So photography of land animals too has also become a bit of a passion, and we've been to South Africa twice in the last two years just to go on
0: safari. Wow, yeah. that's a great shot. I love doing it. But but back then you were swimming around with a giant camera. We were. And you were still.
1: Yeah. It was hard work. And the, the only time you really need a big camera is when you're filming sharks, especially big sharks like tiger sharks, oceanic white tips, um, some of the larger, other larger sharks, bull sharks, because you have to have some kind of protection in front
0: of you. You poke them with it? or No, you don't. <laughs> you
1: just let them either bite it or, or, you know, touch it with their nose and realize that it's not food and they back off. You never actually use it as a weapon, but you can't do that with a GoPro. It doesn't work. So nowadays, GoPros shoot with the same high definition uh, and same quality that some of these old Sonys and heavy 50-pound Gates houses that we used to push around do, but they don't offer you that protection. So if you're going to do that, I take a stick with me as well. But like for Blue Marlins and uh, open ocean work, um, you can't beat you know a GoPro... On a, on, a, on a sled, really, with, with lights, for lightness, maneuverability, and the quality is there.
0: Yeah, th- they're amazing. And I'm just curious, what some of your closer calls or, or crazy things that's happened to you in the water, or ha- do you just no, feel... Never had any.
1: And, you know, look up on the screen there. Oh, sorry. The screen oh. shows some of the footage that we have of different animals. I, I may refer to them occasionally. Th- those are whale sharks who we track in from Isla of in Mexico. And we have a big, big project going on there. Those are spot tags that we put on them, and when it cycles around again, I'll, I'll point it out to you. But um,
0: is that all th- on the website too? So we're looking all, at it's the all on the tracking website. Yeah, so Guy Harvey Research Institute up on the screen in the yeah, studio. you yeah, can see the different movements yeah. of the animals they've tagged.
1: It's an activated, uh, animated website. It's g h r i tracking org. Basically, is, is okay. the one to go to. So it's got all the billfish, sharks, etc. Tons of stuff to look at, um, both um, mostly pop-up, sorry, mostly spot tags, but some pop-up tags as well. I mean, hundreds of animals.
0: Do you feel close to those animals once you place that tag and get yeah, to watch them move a, around? There's a mako right there
1: now we're looking at, and we tagged over a hundred mako sharks with spot tags, uh, and some of the tracks are quite incredible. And these, unlike pat tags, they give you a um, uh, a fix within five meters of reality, so it's that's pretty accurate. close. Yeah, so all of those tracks are like you know down to the last few
0: feet. And obviously, that's all being used by the yeah. scientific community.
1: It is, and and let's go back to makers for a second, because of those hundred, I'm going to say it's 120 makers we've tagged so far. Thirty percent of them, the tags ended up on land, and so whoa, those those sharks are dead. So we have this mortality rate of over thirty percent, which is totally unsustainable for any fishery, and it set it set off all kinds of alarm bells uh, with NOAA, with National Marine Fisheries Service, and um, they changed the laws. They suddenly um, increase the minimum size for retention. Um, they actually now there's a moratorium on taking maker sharks in the Atlantic, in the Western Atlantic, all because of this data, and it showed that. The mako sharks are really, really extremely overfished. Mm -hmm. And we're facing the same problem now with mahi-mahi. We've had the problem with um, white marlin, sailfish to a certain extent in the Atlantic, not in the Pacific. Um, But several species that, you know, we thought we'd never deplete um, have come very close to what they call vulnerable to extinction. The silky shark up there, more tracks in the Galapagos, where we're working with the Charles Darwin Institute. Uh, The silky shark is the second most caught shark in the world in the shark fin trade, after the blue shark. They're like a brown-blue shark, basically. And so there's a whole bunch of tracks there. Oh my gosh. So the value of all that, that's a scarlet hammerhead there, is that in planning your marine protected areas in the open ocean area, away from your 200-mile exclusive economic zone, you now have a reason to say, hey, this area is highly frequented by sharks for whatever reason, feeding or mating or whatever. So we should protect this area.
0: Protect that area. And, and that knowledge was only yeah. in the last 10 years we were able to really do all in, that. In the right? last
1: five or six years. Um, and there's an area, just to complete the maker shark study, in just north of the Yucatan. It's over a bank area, so it's fairly shallow, obviously fairly productive. But we worked on white marlin, sailfish, uh, whale sharks, and maker sharks, all in the same place. And the amount of spots that came up out of that area is just quite incredible, and so it's obviously an area of great significance. And if if we in America had any jurisdiction or common sense, yeah, just protect. We it. would throw a legal net around it and just say no fishing whatsoever. Yeah,
0: yeah, because that's. I mean, <laughs> if we don't protect the the next year class and all that, yeah. obviously, and, and sharks especially are such a, a slow growing species, <laughs> long they only have a couple yep. pups and. Um, but,
1: but that was something we didn't expect. This uh, area of intense activity. Uh, we don't know why, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's just feeding opportunity for, for all these animals there. Yeah.
0: I also liked when you did your your book on Panama, mm-hmm. and you drew the map of Hannibal Bank.
1: No, that was uh, was it uh, the the Reef? Opinion, oh, yeah. Uh, what well, they call the Zangray Reef.
0: Zangray Reef.
1: They remind me that Zangre never actually went there. So they they call oh, it. Oh yes, a so that's history. a that's yeah. a
0: bone of contention, right? Yeah.
1: Um, well, he never did. So it it it, it sounded sexy, you know. Hey, great, you know, blah blah blah. It's like saying you know some other famous guy was there. Anyway, um, we dived on that in 1999 with a, a BBC film unit, um, and it was pretty sketchy. Advanced diving, and we had the to
0: currents rip.
1: Yeah, they do around uh, at the surface, and then below once you get the surface. Below 60 feet, and you're going to 150. It was it was calm, clear, and cold, um, and we only had nine minutes bottom time. So and we did our decompression stops on a rope uh, on nitrox to expedite the the passage of, of nitrogen out of our bodies. We could only do two dives a day, um, but the first week we were there, we couldn't dive at all because the current was, as you said, was so strong. It was like five knots um anyway in that time um apart from taking a lot of uh, footage down there crowded by almaco jacks that just absolutely smothered you it was hard to see sometimes beyond them um i could scope out the reef and get a pretty good mental picture of what it looked like because it's one thing on a depth finder but when you see it how sheer it all looks and it looked like the eiger in the in the Alps in, in, um, Wow, just a massive mountain. Massive mountain, bare rock, no coral, and uh, tons of sea life, big groupers, snappers, some sharks, huge manta rays, all sorts of cool animals. Um, but of course, limited time. I'd love to have gone down there with a, a small submarine.
0: Just really poked oh, I around. Spent
1: uh, two hours down there.
0: Yeah. yeah. But just the, the way, I guess it felt like I could see how your mind worked a little bit when I saw that drawing. Mm. I don't know. It was really eye opening.
1: Was, it was the the result of we did two dives a day for seven days, so fourteen dives on that spot. Wow! Compose that mental image. Yeah, and you could barely see the other side from one side. So yeah, and you were pretty knocked, I have to say. You know you
0: just to stay down there. Yeah, I'm sure as a hell. Yeah, of a workout
1: that was not cool. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so between the diving and mm-hmm. also the fishing, I mean. Do you prefer one or over the other? Or? I, I,
1: I enjoy them both, and some of the best expeditions we've ever done have been combos, so like uh, going to Cocos Island with uh, the madam and the hooker, we did that three times. They had a compressor on board, they had dive gear, and we could uh, do three dives a day and then fish two sessions, about three hours each, um, and you didn't have to go far in those days. The no-fish zone was only about five miles out. Uh, and we catch grand slams every day. <laughs> dive with striped mullet until you were tired, and then go dive with manta rays and whale sharks, and do a night dive at the end of the day. Dang. <laughs> yeah, it was it was intense, but boy, did you see stuff! Wow, uh, you still can do that.
0: That's a, that's amazing, yeah. and and obviously that just feeds your art yeah. creativity. I would think
1: we did the same thing in the Azores. You say the Azores um, about twenty years ago as well lots of diving out there lots of big white marlin blue marlin to dive with um and princess alice bank which is 2 2 hours south of uh Faial the island we are staying at um comes up to 80 feet so it's an easy dive and tons of life out there just amazing you just stop in the middle of the day when it's nice and sunny and um just jump to, in or just jump in <laughs> everybody go down wow go you know, take a look
0: but it i mean the do you feel like the ocean obviously you've gotten to see so much of it and and meet all these creatures and fish but i mean there's still so much unknown right
1: everybody everybody thinks we, we know everything about the ocean marine systems and you don't every day even if you go to the same place time and time again it changes daily weekly with the currents with the um tide um seasonally everything is always on the move very dynamic um i think it's you know safe to say that one of our longest running studies has been uh in grand cayman at the uh, stingray city place where we started a project there uh, 22 years ago and people had no idea why the stingray stayed there for so long how many male and female ratio when they bred and um we found how dynamic that whole system was over this time. Um, we've tagged over 650 rays in that time, 22 years there. Wow. And at any one time, you can go there and you see 30 or 40 at a time. We do surveys twice a year for three days. We catch every single ray. They're all tagged with a pit tag so that you know, we keep a track of them. We don't track them over distance. We just know they enter our database, and so we have them on record. Um, and they come and go, and some you don't see for a couple of years, and then they show up again and all of that. But um, that, that long-term tracking of a long-lived animal is, is what it takes to really understand the population. And, then, and of course, sorry, the, the, the socioeconomic well-being um, or the, the sort of benefit to the community of having that marine interaction for which people pay um, Is obviously consequential to the economy of the of the country you're talking about. Oh, so in, it's the same way. kind yeah. of attractive. Absolutely. Yeah. Each one of those animals, like the the big females, which live fifty sixty years, I would say in in we we estimated that each animal, based on the number of visitors that go a year, um, generates five hundred thousand dollars US a year, and so if they live for twenty years, that's ten million. Um And they live for fifty years, most of the big ones without accidents <laughs> and um and so, at that time, we were doing all this analysis they weren 't protected and it 's like you go to the minister of the environment and say See, this you is need some money. to do something yeah here, you know because people were there were stories of people catching them and you know eating them <laughs> so it 's like why would you why would you not put a legal fence around this area and just save it
0: yeah that 's you know? Using that model, that socioeconomic model, mm. is a great way to get people's attention.
1: But it's the same for billfish, just about any kind of fish. You know, uh, we, we don't encourage bottom fishing in Cayman because people want to see groupers and snappers and hogfish and all this stuff, grunts out there. They, they don't want to see a, a, a desert. So why would you not have a big marine park area, which we do. We have a 40, 45% no-take zones now in Cayman.
0: Are you so? There's so many things environmentally that can weigh on us as anglers, you know, who love the environment and fishing. Do you like how concerned are you about coral or habitat and those kinds of things?
1: Coral is uh, coral is a real problem. I'm not a coral reef biologist, but I've I've picked up enough um, working at a coral reef marine lab in Jamaica for many years, um, just off by association. Um and to have a, to make a comparison uh, because we all forget you know there's this this shifting baseline syndrome, Charlie, that affects all of us, um, where you get used to what you see around you now and you forget what it was like you know two years ago or five years ago, or even longer, ten years ago. And Jessica and I went uh, on a liverboard dive trip to the uh, gardens of the Queen. South side of of uh, Cuba just before the pandemic and we went to coral reefs that were as as close to pristine in the Caribbean as you can get. There are many in the western Pacific by the way that are still in very very good shape. The Caribbean has not been so lucky there's also a lot less reef systems but here was we we're looking at staghorn and elkhorn corals and and uh, big stony corals that were just untouched and the reason being there was they're far offshore. The reefs are about 40 miles out. Um, there's no coastal develop- development in the area. There's no agriculture. Um, there's a little bit of uh, fly fishing that goes on, all catch and release from those little keys out there. But basically, there was no interference at all, and all the dive sites had um, big mooring balls on them. So up and down 70 miles of reef. So there was diving access and fly fishing, and catch and release, and that was the only human influence. And it was amazing, astounding.
0: Just beautiful.
1: Yeah, and even you know, climate change, which is, includes acidification, which would affect stony corals very badly, or anything with a, um, a calcified shell, and of course water temperature. And I'm sure this year there's got to be bleaching out there because we have very bad bleaching in Cayman right now. Because of the elevated water temperature, as you've had here in Florida, but generally the the the, the reefs were in very good shape. So that's that's where we came from. Um, you add to it, you know, where where I grew up in Jamaica, fishing pressure was enormous from both um, spear fishing, uh, line fishing, and also uh, fish pots or fish traps. Which okay. is I- any form of indiscriminate fishing is no good for the fishery. You know. You know all that. So reefs have suffered from all of that. And nowadays you've got you know, stony coral tissue loss disease and you've got different um, bacterial effects and all sorts of other detrimental things happening to coral. Um, and so the cover of living coral in the Keys now I think is around 2%. By comparison in Grand Cayman where I live it's about 8%, which is you know, still not good and you go up to Little Cayman, which is a bit more pristine. So 2% in the Keys, uh, 8% in Grand Cayman, um, 23% in Little Cayman, which is 85 miles away from Grand, and um, very little development. There are five boutique hotels on board um, there, and a population of 100 people. So minimal impact.
0: So it's that yeah. human touch. It's the human
1: touch. And the big pro- the biggest single problem, I think, is... Sewage disposal—what we do with our sewage and how well we treat it—because we live on a porous substrate, and as we do here in Florida, and everything seeps out. Everything—the water moves, and it carries the phosphates and nitrates that help the algae grow exponentially and cover coral. They—they they outcompete with coral; they smother it. It dies. And I saw that in on a recent diving. Came out. I couldn't believe the amount of fleshy corals. Beg your pardon amount of fleshy algae that was just spreading over the coral living coral and you know um, prohibiting the light from getting to it disaster
0: yeah well i don't want to get all sad here but (laughs) no the thing is that it can all change right
1: and and just as in this book and every book i i end up with um what needs to be done, uh, and there are other authors who do the same thing. They, they point to what's gone wrong, how they measured it, how severe it is, but what, what changes can be made. And certainly in terms of overfishing, because that, that's a just as big a problem worldwide, uh, more marine protected areas are the answer. There's no doubt about it. Um, you, you've got to extend protections. Um, you can fish around those protected areas, mm-hmm. But leave them be. Uh, have no take whatsoever. Um, of any um, shellfish, fin fish, just let them do their job, and, um, and it does work. It does.
0: It yep. comes back, and yep. it's encouraging. I mean, we've seen it in various fisheries, too, striped mm-hmm. bass, mm-hmm. which are unfortunately kind of in trouble again. But it, it ebbs and flows, and, mm. and I think with the science you guys are gathering, it makes all those things easier. And and obviously raising money and doing all these things, you're able to do. That's the tough
1: part, Charlie. It's, it's ugh, Lord. Since we've started this marine science education initiative, it's been a lot easier to raise money for kids' education by comparison to raising money for fish. Fish are still cold and smelly in people's minds, so they belong as a fillet on your plate, and they don't think of it as a living animal. That there's the tagging of the t- of the uh, whale shark we're talking about. Oh, live cool. with a guy you don't catch a whale shark and tie it up you dive you on do it do it all in the water drill
0: it, drill it
1: and then put the thing on in the water yeah holy crap yeah it works so that's how you get those tracks because all the other sharks you have to catch them somehow
0: yeah like those o-search yeah. guys lift them out of the water but well, that, that's what they
1: do yeah that's you're longer. just
0: hanging onto the dorsal fin there well
1: have they tagged a whale shark I'm i they don't, don't think sure. so. No, they've done white sharks and tigers and stuff like that so the whale sharks um have become an important animal simply because of their ecotourism value now, and there are there are five different aggregation su- sites around. No, nine different aggregation sites around the world. Uh, one in the one in the Gulf of Mexico off Texas, but the biggest one in the world is right off the Yucatan, which is
0: convenient for us. You go there a lot.
1: There are others, yes, um, and so they've all become um, ecotourist destinations for people, and they're... It stopped the killing of whale sharks, basically, because in Asia they killed a lot.
0: But now they're seeing the value, yeah. and they're so cool. And easily, yeah. you could be catching sailfish off a of bait ball, and there oh, they right. are. Oh, oh yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah.
1: So, um, so you know, I'm a big uh, supporter of shark ecotourism to end up on a good note because people pay pay a lot of money to go and see sharks in the wild and uh, take pictures and have close encounters and blah blah, and lots millions of dollars is generated are generated and not a single shark is killed
0: yeah hmm. and and but like we were saying about research and stuff those projects you're doing are so expensive and yeah. can you yeah. generate some of the money for that to yeah. it all kind of works together i would think it does so we we have several
1: streams of income um for the foundation one is of course if you buy any any Guy Harvey merchandise or product, uh, a portion of the proceeds go back into the research work. Uh, we have a, a specialty license plate here in Florida that generates a lot of money. And a lot of people ask, how can I help? And said, so, well, buy a specialty plate. A, they look good on your car. I've and got the mahi on my thank, truck right now. You. <laughs> there you go, my man. Um, they look good. And, and B, people know, you know, it's, it's a fish uh, that that people are familiar with. And they're pretty um, and money. Actually, the good story is money from that license plate program goes back into the mahi research or dolphin fish research project, which we are the biggest supporter, uh, biggest sponsor, and we help uh, Wes Merton, who runs that program, uh, in the Atlantic and Pacific, do lots of tagging. Um, we had so we have that we have we do work with the Florida Lottery from time to time, so we do a lot of fundraising um, as. All of these non-profits do. Uh, we have a, a very active board. And recently, because of the, the education initiative, we had some big sponsors like Florida Power and Light come on board. And they, they will give us money for more than a year, so a three-year program. Uh, some other corporations... Um,
0: I think it's important for people to realize that though, that yeah, it, this is a, a way for you guys to give back to the resource right. because I think it's easy to see your stuff on a license plate or something and people don't put two and two together. And they may say like, Oh, he's just licensing his stuff, but you're actually out there raising money and the stuff's going back to research. So I, I really hope people will get that message.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. It's, it's what we are. You know, we, um, we combine the research like i said earlier we've we've published 170 peer-reviewed papers in the best journals scientific journals in the world um, we've you know in, encouraged a lot of conservation generally through all of our own actions and um, we need your support you know everybody's feeling what can i do to help and it's, this is this is a great way to help you can help any one of many conservation organizations, CCA, IGFA, Billfish Foundation, um, there's tons of them, either locally or regionally, that you can support. And they all need cash. It takes cash to care, I see. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for spending this time with us. It's a crazy busy week for you. It's a good week. <laughs> it's a great week. Yeah. It's fun to be in Lauderdale for the boat show. It's I love your studio here. and thank you. Yeah. It's an honor to sit down with you guys. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thanks, Charlie. Great. And uh, hi to all your listeners, and good luck, good fishing, and tight lines.